Once you get a Bible, or if you already have one, go ahead and open it to Luke chapter 6. Thanks, Austin. How's that going, by the way? Okay. <laughs> Great. Luke chapter 6. We're currently working our way into a series called Practicing the Way that I believe will shape the life of our church for years to come. And the entire series is built around this premise that each of us is invited to become a disciple or an apprentice of this controversial, often misunderstood, studied, reviled, respected, and loved rabbi and teacher called Jesus of Nazareth. Now, should we accept this open invitation to apprentice Jesus, our three life goals then become to be with Jesus, to become like Jesus, and to do what he did. Now, last week we began working through those goals kind of respectively and in detail as we talked about what it means to be with Jesus. If you weren't here, go back, listen to the podcast, and catch up. I don't know how many times I can say we're a futuristic church, but very futuristic, apparently. There's a website, a podcast, all the stuff. Um, tonight, we're going to draw our attention to the second goal, become like Jesus. Now, with that said, let's begin in Luke chapter 6, beginning with verse 39. Prepare yourselves for the shortest parable of all time. You guys ready for this? Luke 6, 39. He also told them this parable. Can the blind lead the blind? Will they not both fall into a pit? The student is not above the teacher, but everyone who is fully trained will be like their teacher. Thus concludes the shortest parable of all time. And interestingly, this tiny parable is a parable about discipleship, about apprenticeship under a teacher. In context, the blind mentioned here are a class of first century religious elite called the Pharisees, if you know the story. Um, in the biographies of Jesus, these provocative uh, figures juxtaposed against this even more provocative figure, Jesus of Nazareth, um, often had this exchange of words or a war of words, I guess we could say, and Jesus reserved some of his sharpest critique for this revered group of religious leaders. And it's easy for us, if you've grown up in church culture at all, to sort of look at the Pharisees as the villains in the story, and often they are the villains in the gospel, but these were the most respected, most well-thought-of, revered class of religious leaders in first-century Judaism. So Jesus calls these guys blind guides, um, something of a self-explanatory insult, I think. And here, in this parable, Jesus points out that there are actually blind apprentices as well. And they're learning from blind masters. So it's a double negative, figuratively speaking. And that ruin is waiting for both of them, the blind guides and the blind masters. But then he goes on to say something fascinating. The student, and here the word student is the exact same word that we translate elsewhere as apprentice. Um, or learner, the student is not above the teacher, and everyone, uh, every student will go on to become like the teacher. That means that for Jesus, the outcome of discipleship, the thing that he invites his followers into, is that the student would become like the teacher. And this obviously has a tremendous ramification on you and I, and that this means we need to change. And by change, I don't mean like uh, that our lives need some sort of slight soft adjustment here and there or a, a bit of self-help and, you know, behavior management in some way. No, I mean that we are in need of a radical overall of our entire person from the ground up, from the inside out, in order to become like our teacher, Jesus. And the New Testament describes this type of change with a very, really strong word, transformation. 
Uh, in Greek, it's this word metamorpho. It's the, the same word that we derive our English word metamorphosis. That's probably a tad obvious. Uh, but the idea of a caterpillar entering a cocoon and then coming out an entirely different shape, a butterfly or like a mogwai goes into the cocoon after it eats after midnight. And, thanks, Dave. And then it comes out as a gremlin. If you, I, I knew there would be like one or two laughs, but I was, I'm sticking to it anyway. Um, it's, it's that strong a connotation. You go in one shape and you come out an entirely different shape. Of course, the thing is, many of us don't imagine our transformation as disciples in as radical imagery as all that. We prefer a sort of, um, maybe even subconsciously, a sort of uh, managed sinful behaviors uh, idea of discipleship or else we think of ourselves as, you know, we're just sinners saved by grace and then we sort of happily accept the reality of the state that we're in and we don't change much at all. This past week... Uh, I was in San Diego with uh, Abby and Hannah and Cameron, and we were at this retreat for church planters and pastors from around the world, and, and there was lecture after lecture. It was a small sort of humble collection of folks, uh, but they were from all sorts of diverse backgrounds, a lot of them from South Africa and then Canada, and then some were from California and some were from the Northwest, and in lecture after lecture and workshop after workshop, there was this consistent thread that kept emerging. It was the story of pastors and their churches who according to a cursory sort of glance everyone's doing quite well but beneath the surface something sinister lurks um, though many of them the pastors and the churches to which they belong they've been following Jesus for years in some cases decades they remain wrought with anxiety they're largely unhappy they're emotionally unhealthy they feel as though they're failing as husbands or wives or mothers or fathers and even more they felt entirely stuck in this bog of stagnation. Pastor after pastor and leader after leader um, saying, oh, I hit this point, or I'm, I'm there now, or this is me last year, or whatever it might be. And the idea was like, well, are they cleaned up on the outside? Sure. They have, by all intents and purposes, they seem to be doing quite well. Are they biblically knowledgeable and mostly well-behaved? Yeah, of course. But altogether transformed into the shape of Jesus in its incredible entirety, well, no, not at all, not by a long shot. And to be completely honest, um, for the past year or so, this has been part of my story as well. And perhaps the most frustrating component in this common narrative is that it isn't that these Christians are ignorant or that they're lazy or that they're secretly sinister or wrongly motivated. In fact, uh, we want to be like Jesus. Uh, many of us desperately so. In fact, for many of us, it isn't even that we aren't trying to be like Jesus. Something isn't breaking through this seemingly impenetrable wall of our own limitation and we don't know why. In fact, for many of us, um, we want to break through. We don't know how. A few years ago, a, uh, my mentor and my friend at the church who planted us, someone uh, with a, a journey that looks a lot like this story, this common thread of like a, eventual burnout, and uh, having to rebuild from the ground up. Uh, he got to a point where he sort of stepped down from this role that he had in leading this giant megachurch network, and he began a bit of a journey. And as I was beginning my journey to sort of figure out how we would plant this church and, and do Van City, I was following this mentor of mine on this interesting sort of shared quest. Totally different uh, stories, obviously, um, but a, a journey that somehow converged in the middle or overlapped a little bit. And we started to study emotionally healthy spirituality. And that was new to us. Uh, we started uh, seeing a therapist uh, separately, you know, of course. Uh, <laughs> though it is the same therapist, so I, I assume we're going to keep that guy in business forever or 
as long as we both lead churches. Um, we both started reading stacks of books on formation, spiritual formation, an idea that was kind of lost in our uh, disciplines. Uh, we started reading about neurology and, and Catholic spirituality, and we, we started to talk about how all this stuff could, in, in theory, change the way that we do church. Now, I don't want to give this impression that since this has been this long, complex journey that's been going on behind the scenes for a long time, um, that I've sort of mastered these things, or, I, man, I've come up this mountain, and now I'm inviting you guys to join me at the top of the mountain, uh, the mountain, and you guys need to get on my level, or something like that. My journey has honestly been a rocky one, to say the least. Uh, there's been an ebb and a flow, um, and that's the, and the understatement of the year. But if you ask my wife, or if you ask my therapist, or my closest friends, they'll all tell you, man, that guy's a real piece of work. He's got a long way to go. So <laughs> it isn't a matter of winning the race at all so to speak. Uh, but what I'd love to do this evening is to even so just sort of download a 30,000 foot summary of everything that I've been learning, where my head has been and my heart has been for the last couple of years, and where it's taking us as a church. So a bit of a warning tonight is more lectury than sermon, but where we're headed is absolutely and entirely rooted in the scriptures, and it's all a means of sort of working our way back to chapter and verse later on. Are you guys with me? Still on board so far? What are you going to say, no? At some point, every time I make that joke, someone's going to be like, no, shut up. Um, now, before we really dig into uh, tonight's insider lingo that's going to come up again, or in uh, you know, Pee Wee's Playhouse language, tonight's secret word. You remember the secret word? The, Scream real loud. I shouldn't do the, I shouldn't do the Pee, -wee, Pee Wee impression. I'll try it again later. I'll just slip it in there. Um, tonight's insider language is uh, spiritual formation. That's just the term that describes how we change to become like Jesus. Dallas Willard has been perhaps the most influential journey thinker, author in this journey, and he defines spiritual formation this way. Spiritual formation in the Christian tradition is a process of increasingly being possessed and permeated by the character traits of Jesus as we walk in the easy yoke of discipleship with Jesus, our teacher. There was a time when spiritual formation was more commonly referred to as sanctification um, before we sort of rediscovered the role that psychology plays in the process. In fact, the authors of the New Testament and the early church fathers, you could argue, could be seen as much as psychologists as they were theologians. They wrote so much about the mind and the wiring of the mind. And here's the key idea. We have to realize in understanding this concept. Spiritual formation is not a uniquely Christian thing. Spiritual formation is a human thing. We are all being formed all the time. We are being shaped into someone and something else every single day, whether you like it or not. To be a human being is a dynamic state. It's never static. You're evolving and shifting all the time. Or put it another way, we are all disciples of someone or something. The question isn't, are you a disciple? The question is, who or what are you a disciple of? Is it your parents, or is it your host culture and your heritage? Is it your, uh, some, some author or professor that you follow, some social media personality, the folks that you work with? Who is it? And if you plot the trajectory of your character arc some 20 or 30 years into the future, who are you becoming? Uh, is it Jesus, obviously expressed through your personality or your gender or your stage of life, whatever? Or is it someone else entirely? 
And to further understand what I mean, I want us to walk through two specific paradigms. The first is called unintentional spiritual formation. This is how we are being formed simply by waking up tomorrow and living our lives. It requires absolutely no intentionality on your part nor any focus on your apprenticeship to Jesus, and it is inevitable. First, we are being formed, if you look at the top of the graph here, by the stories that we believe. We all have narratives that we live by. Um, screenwriter Bobette Buster calls human beings narrative animals, meaning that we understand the world in stories. And uh, sexuality is a great easy example of what I mean by this. If you believe, for example, in evolutionary biology as an ultimate worldview, meaning uh, evolution apart from any involvement whatsoever uh, from a creative God, all of life is this incredible accident. If you believe that, then monogamy is simply a social construct. You know, sex is nothing more than a temporary coupling for reproductive reasons or for biological release, you know, so romantic. Um, if you believe this story, if that's the narrative that you believe in your head, it has a massive effect on how you carry and consider and express your sexuality as a person. You are shaped by the story that you believed. Um, secondly, we are being formed by our habits. Uh, what we do on a regular basis is what we become. A tremendous amount of writing and research has been done over the last few decades in the field of uh, psychology on the power of habit. Fascinating stuff. And what all that exhaustive research is getting at is that we are little more than the cumulative effect of our daily and weekly habits all the time. Because our habits sort of get to the core uh, of our being and they shape our loves and they shape our longings. For example, uh, I'm a movie person, you know, I suspect a lot of you guys are as well. I obsess over movies. I often, uh, this sounds, may sound silly if you don't like movies, but I often experience God's closeness and beauty through a great movie. Uh, I, I have this podcast that I do for fun out of the overflow of time that I have about movies. Um, when I was young, uh, as young as three years old, I did the math the other day, uh, my dad began taking my brother and me to the movies all the time. We just always went to the movies. We had booster seats in the beginning. You know, I remember seeing Masters of the Universe, the He-Man movie, in like 1987 or something and falling asleep. I have a vivid recollection of it. Um, and for me, over time, movies became about much more than entertainment or a pastime. It became something like a soul care or like a comfort food, you know. To me, the idea of like a rainy day and like a couch and uh, watching like Labyrinth for the 300th time or something like that, that's like settles my brain, calms my soul, reminds me of God's closeness. It sounds silly, but it's true. Now, how did I get there? Did I read a book one day about the power of movies and go, hey, I think that that's true. I think I'll be the type of person that's shaped and formed my movies all the time. I just intellectually concluded that movies will now be meaningful in my life. Well, obviously not. I, I have become that type of person for whom movies are meaningful over 30 plus years of habit. Our habits shape what we love, for better or for worse. And nothing, and I, I mean nothing, is more influential to our character than what we love. Um, the point I'm making is that the things that we do do something to us. So we're shaped by our habits. And thirdly, we're being shaped all the time by our relationships. Most of us become more like the people that we spend time with the more that we spend time with them. And I realize this varies from person to person, but regardless of how strong-willed you imagine yourself to be, given enough time and enough proximity, you will absorb some of the character traits of the people with whom you spend all your time. It's something of an inevitability. For a long time, 
uh, back at Bridgetown Church, uh, the church that planted us, whenever our team would be reading or, or praying through something and something like really subversive or uh, captivating would pop up, I would, I would say, man, that's so punk rock. And everyone would laugh and they'd be like, oh, that guy, <laughs> look at him in his black clothes. And uh, then eventually they all started to like nod in agreement and they're like, wow, that is punk rock. It's true. <laughs> um, and then recently I was down there in the office working with those guys and I found that everyone's calling everything punk rock. It's like, uh, wow, look, the, my coffee's really strong. It's so punk rock. And then this is real. Someone said, oh, wow, there's still ink in this dry erase marker. That's so punk rock. And I was like, no, it's not. We, we no longer understand what this term means whatsoever. So what can I say? They all want to talk like me, apparently. I guess it's like, uh, but it took years. So the idea is with you guys to hang, out, hang around for years, and eventually you'll start to like me. Uh, if you don't yet, it's just a matter of time. But uh, in reality, this is the way that it works. You spend enough time with the person, you start to take on attributes of the person. Even the Apostle Paul writes that bad company corrupts uh, good morals, meaning that if you spend time with even corrupt people, your own value system will itself become corrupted. We're all shaped by our relationships. And then fourthly, all of this is taking place in the context of an environment. For most of us, that's like Vancouver, or it's the Portland metro area, or um, it, which itself is something of a formation machine. I don't know if you guys noticed, uh, with influential culture being crafted in a nearby urban core and then permeating much of not just the metro area, but slowly shaping an entire region of the Pacific Northwest. It's a fascinating thing. But then there are even the smaller environments in which we carry out the routine of our everyday lives. Uh, Perhaps, you know, for some of you guys, that's maybe downtown in this uh, urban area that we're sitting in right now, or maybe it's like the more suburban or rural areas of East Vancouver. Even the microcultures of like our own homes and our families have an environment that shapes us over time. And then the umbrella over all those things is this unstoppable futuristic machine of globalization. So um, for more, I've told you guys this before, for, for more than a decade of my life, I used to travel around the country constantly. And even from my own narrow perspective, uh, back in, say, like, I don't know, 2001 or 2000 or something like that, there was this radical sense of cultural shift from city to city and state to state. Would you agree, Mike? You went to a different place, and it was like you entered a different alien environment every single time, and you had to adjust to it. Um, and then more and more, I'm noticing that that paradigm's narrowing all the time. You know, just this last week, we were in Southern California, like I was saying, and Abby and I woke up one morning, and we said, let's just walk to the nearest coffee shop and get coffee. So we go outside around the corner, and we step into a coffee shop that looks identical to Compass Coffee down the street here. Exact same looking baristas, exact same outfits and haircuts, exact same playlists, exact same menu items. It was a carbon copy from the ground up. Obviously, I don't think that they really ripped off Compass Coffee, but that's the way globalization works. Because of the digital age and your smartphone and social media and the way that trends and fashion spread now, all within the environments that we live, the world is starting to get smaller and smaller and sadly way less creative as time goes on every single day. So there's the stories that we believe, the relationships that we entertain, our habits, all taking place in the context of the environments in which we live. They have this synergistic energy to sort of conspire and collaborate in shaping us into a certain type of person. It's a recipe for formation. And all of this happens over time. So think back as a thought exercise for fun, because everyone loves to look back. Think back to the person that you were 10 years ago. 
Think about the things that you loved and the things that were important to you. For some of you, I'm sure there's some consistency there. For others of you, you're like, God, don't make me do this. Don't make me think <laughs> back to 10 years ago. Or imagine, this is, a lot, uh, this is fascinating as well. Imagine someone that you know, most of us know someone like this, uh, who has moved from, like, say, the East Coast or elsewhere in the country to the Pacific Northwest, uh, you know, just recently versus someone who's been here for like a couple of years or something like that. These factors and time change us for better or for worse. I knew this guy who, uh, who lived in the Northwest for years um, and he was raising money because he wanted to go live in the UK and do mission work or something. And one Sunday um, I caught him back in the States. He was visiting church. He had only been gone for like, I want to say a year or something like that. Uh, and he, he, he came up to me at the gathering. I was like, oh, it's this guy. I haven't seen him forever. He's like, oh, man, listen to your teaching last week. It was fantastic. And I was like, what are you talking about? You're from Beaverton. What? Like, um, and then I said, was it fantastic? Oh, cheerio, you know. Um, but all of these things, the environment that we're in, the relationships that we have, I shouldn't have made fun of that guy. Uh, we'll erase it from the podcast. Hopefully he'll never, maybe he'll think this teaching is fantastic. Um, all of this happens through our life experiences. So given enough time, given enough life experiences, you're shaped into a different sort of person. If you, for example, go through something tragic or difficult like a divorce, um, something that's good but radically different, you have a kid or you suffer an illness, or you make a lot of money, or you lose a lot of money, or, or whatever it might be, life experiences shape you into a different sort of person. And that's exactly my point. All of this has an effect on us. It changes us, and it's inevitable. There's no way around that. We are all being formed into a different type of person. So if this is how you change to become more like your environment or more like your friends or your coworkers or more like the habits in which we indulge. How do we change to become more like Jesus of Nazareth? Before we unpack the alternate paradigm, I want to explore and dismiss what I think are two sort of commonly held myths about spiritual formation so we can get them out of the way and be done with them. The first myth is that all you need to do is know the Bible. Believe it or not, I hear it all the time. A uh, brief bit of history, about 400 years ago during what's called the Protestant Reformation, this gentleman called Martin Luther, maybe you've heard of him, uh, he, he had this theory of what he called sanctification, the same thing that we're calling spiritual formation right now, uh, the process of becoming like Jesus, and he honestly uh, theorized that it was a twofold process. So for Martin Luther, he estimated that sanctification unfolded thusly. First, you hear sermons. Um, meaning you go to church and you do what you're doing right now. Some guy or gal yaks at you for a half hour. And then the other way is the sacraments. So Luther was essentially still Catholic in his view of like the communion uh, and the sacraments. So that's it. For, for, for Luther to become more like Jesus, you go to church, you listen to a preacher, and you take the Lord's Supper. Now, fast forward all the way to evangelicalism in the modern Western world. We, we've all but ditched the sacraments, essentially, meaning we have a very low view of communion. And to us, or to most evangelicals, rather, it's essentially this symbolic gesture. It's nothing else. You eat cracker and you drink juice. Most of us don't know why in the world we're doing it at all, which isn't a good thing, to be clear. But the sacraments are all but out for us. That leaves us with sermons. 
Um, and this is the theory that I would argue many, if not most, pastors and churches are operating out of today, which is why you find so many church gatherings that are completely structured around the idea of some guy or gal yakking at you for a half hour. So the idea is if you go to a Bible teaching or you go to a Jesus-centered church, church they like to say, you will eventually become more like Jesus. The problem is, of course, that anyone who's been in or around the church for more than a short stint recognizes individuals who have engaged actively in Bible-believing, Jesus-centered churches for decades and are yet still greedy and materialistic and selfish or their own marriage number two or number three. They, they, they're militaristic. They hate their enemies. They're hyper-political and on down the list. And we think that, uh, you know, I can't begin to speak for the guy. He's not around to defend himself, poor Luther. But we think that Luther, intelligent though he was, was working from a sort of Western European post-Enlightenment view of human beings, meaning that his idea of humans, shaped by the Enlightenment, was that people are mostly just brains in a car body, you know? You are, your body is just a vehicle for the brain, or as one French philosopher wrote, I think, therefore, I am. And that's, that's the idea. Now... If that view of humanity were true, I could simply think something and then I could accomplish it with some ease, you know. I could read a book on the dangers of sugar or whatever, you know. I could watch that Fed Up documentary. You guys seen that thing? Poor kids eating those Hot Pockets and M&Ms and stuff. And you're like, this is the worst. And then you chocolate bar. Um, <laughs> or I could just, you know, watch something informative, learn something about the dangers of sugars and all of Abby's begging and pleading for me to go easy on the sweets would be put to rest because it's, it's fine. I saw, I read the book, and now I've decided there will be no more sugar, you know. Um, but knowing something is not the same thing as doing something, which that isn't even the same thing as wanting to do something because we are not merely brains inside body cars. We are human beings. And what this means for our apprenticeship, apprenticeship to Jesus is this. You cannot think your way to Christ-likeness. You understand what I mean? You can't possibly think your way into becoming more like Jesus. The way of Jesus is more than a set of ideas. It's a way of life. So if you listen to me every week, well done, by the way. Keep up the good work. If you listen to me every single work, that's a step in the right direction. But if you go to a Bible study, if you podcast 10 other smarter people than me, if you read every book that you get your hands on, that's all great. Honestly, it really is great. I'm not being facetious on that one. But it's like sort of like trying to learn karate by reading a book. You know, the assumption that uh, you can just open this book, go through it, listen to a podcast, and now I'm a black belt, you know. Um, you'll never become a black belt without years of practice and training and active apprenticeship to a teacher. Now, the second myth about spiritual formation is that you don't have to do anything. God is going to do everything for you. Now, the idea is that you're, you're so lousy <laughs> that you're essentially off the hook. And I'm, I'm being a bit of a hyperbolic here somewhere. People's heads are exploding or whatever. But there is a sort of conceit that, um, whether expressed directly or sort of uh, presuppose, that you can sort of recline and God will do all the transformative work because you can't do any of it on your own. Uh, the most famous summation of this theology is that off-spoken cliche, let go and let God, you know? Um, and forgive me if you say that all the time and now you're like looking shifty-eyed at the people around you. Um, but 
Uh, all due respect, and maybe it's just me personally, I think that this is kind of a, a horrible way <laughs> to think of, of spiritual formation. If we're going to go with the cliches, I would much prefer the truer statement, uh, without him we can't, but without us he won't. That sort of synergistic idea. Meaning transformation is a joint effort that unfolds in collaborative partnership. God absolutely has an active role to play in your transformation, and you have an active role to play in your transformation. And if that line of thinking starts to make you squirm in your chair and you're getting really uncomfortable, think of it this way. This is how Dallas Willard loves to put it. Grace isn't opposed to effort. It's opposed to earning. These are entirely distinct concepts, and sadly, we often confuse the two things. So if your kid practices the piano every single day, um, is this in and of itself some kind of attempt to earn your love in, in general terms? Well, no, obviously, they already have your love. In theory, they're practicing so that they be can become a great pianist. It has nothing to do with currying your favor or your love. Grace is opposed to earning, not opposed to effort. So in the same way, the love of God in and of itself is not enough to transform you into a new creation entirely in and of itself. We still have to partner with God, playing our part while allowing the Spirit to play His. Now, with those two myths out of the way, we're back to my question. How do we change? Let's explore the second paradigm of spiritual formation. Now, I want us to understand that all spiritual formation for the apprentice of Jesus is counterformation. And what I mean is that we are working to offset the rest of our lives, meaning this paradigm is meant to go against the previous paradigm or to counteract the previous paradigm, the stories we believe, uh, our relationships, our habits, and so on. And the first way that we do counterformation is through teaching, believe it or not. That's, that's right, I'm, I'm not trying to put myself out of a job here. Seriously, the, the, the best sort of teaching does more than sort of inform you of the ways in which you're right or wrong. You know, the, the best teaching permeates your mind with a vision of what it means to have the life that is truly life, what Jesus called life to the fullest. It undermines the stories that we've been believing with something much better the best teaching. And the best teaching exposes the truth as something beautiful and it exposes the lies that we believe for what they are as heinous and destructive in our lives. And in theory, the best teaching also takes aim at the mind and the imagination, but it goes by way of your heart. This is why the classic text Romans 12.1 talks about being transformed by the renewing of your mind. So, teaching the Bible, sermons, Sunday gathering, reading books about theology, whatever it might be, all of this absolutely plays a vital role in your transformation. I'm not here to beat up on intellectualism whatsoever. But getting the right ideas into our minds alone is only the beginning of the process. Next comes practice. We began this series by pointing out that the way... Jesus' famous collection of teachings, what we call the Sermon on the Mount, begins and ends with the idea of practice, whoever practices these teachings of mine. Jesus presupposes that this radical way of life will require a lifetime of practice within the community of God's people. Remember that uh, marathon analogy from a few weeks ago? The idea is that um, if me, Josh, who doesn't run at all, is out of shape, 
uh, has to like pause after going up the flight of stairs to breathe for a second before I go in the room so that no one's judging me for going up the stairs and going, hey, everybody, how's it going? You know, that thing. If I get up tomorrow and I decide, I want to, hey, I'd like to run a marathon, and I just try to do it. You know, some pastors are around me going, you can do it. Try your hardest. We believe in you. You have the Spirit of God in you. I'm still going to run for a few feet and fall down, you know, wheezing on the side of the road or whatever. Um, the, it would be better if I got up the next day and attempted one mile and then I fall down on the side of the road wheezing, and then I go home and rest, and then I try one mile again, and then I take a day off, and then I try two miles. You know, the, the idea is that you train rather than trying. That's how we approach our apprenticeship to Jesus. Uh, last week, we also talked about the role that spiritual disciplines play in that, or what we're calling the practices of Jesus. Um, and as I said then, it's not about trying, it's about training, because Willpower only carries you so far in this uh, paradigm. And, and ordinarily, uh, not, not every, uh, every single time, but ordinarily, if it's willpower versus, say, porn, or willpower versus anxiety, or willpower versus gossip, or, or whatever it is, willpower gets bludgeoned to death every single time, alone. Uh, my friend John Mark defines a spiritual discipline as a habit or practice based on the life of Jesus that over time makes it possible for us to do what we cannot currently do through direct effort. So imagine the way of Jesus as akin to mastering the piano or becoming a black belt or learning a second language, any of those things. To master any of them requires training and it requires practice. If we want to become the kind of people for whom the teachings in the Sermon on the Mount are not only possible for us but altogether doable, and we have to practice. For most of us, simply saying to one another, you know what, Jesus teaches that you shouldn't worry. Don't worry anymore. Stop it. You know, knock it off with all your worrying. Or don't lust. That's, that's an easy one. It's, it's, it's the same thing as like pointing to me pointing to a piano and telling my son, he's almost three now, play Mozart. You know, try. Try really hard. You're not trying when he's like, boom, 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 just banging on it. Um, and, and honestly, it's not that he can't do it in perpetuity. He's just this type of human that all his life, he will never be able to do that. It's that he can't do it yet. So if he tried now, it would obviously be horrible. He would fail miserably. It would just be like the little pudge paws on the, on the piano. But as he gets older, if he practices for years as he grows, he could become the type of person that can master Mozart and play it effectively and easily through practice. And the beauty of the practices of Jesus or the spiritual disciplines is that they are aimed at the mind and the imagination, much like teaching, but they get there by way of your heart. So they essentially become habits, our new habits. They shape our love and our longings by repetition, by daily practicing the way of Jesus over and over again, day after day, year after year, the will becomes formed, it becomes solidified, it becomes stronger. Our habits and loves get rewired in a new uh, direction. Our love for Jesus himself begins to deepen by deliberately choosing to do the things of Jesus. And what is now impossible eventually becomes second nature. Third encounter formation is community instead of relationships. What's the difference between relationships and community? Relationships, uh, we often self-select based on preferences. You know, oh, hey, you look just like me. You like the things I like. You're the best. Let's hang out together and be best friends. Uh, those are more like relationships. Community, on the other hand, simply means the family of God uh, around us. So that could be uh, a group of peers and close friends. Sometimes it is. That's awesome. 
Uh, or it could be a completely random collection of folks through whom you went through the basics class with and you came out as a Van City community or whatever. Or it could be the folks who are in your neighborhood who also follow Jesus, or it could be just the folks who belong to your church community as a whole. And I cannot say this enough, and I know we say this all the time, but we cannot follow Jesus alone. Jesus did not live in isolation. In fact, he didn't even just have a single disciple. He had disciples because community is the context in which change actually takes place. Uh, why? Well, for two reasons. Because two things uniquely transpire in community that don't anywhere else. The first is exposure, and the second one is encouragement. So when you live in close community, whether that's uh, you know, a Van City community or church small group, whatever it is, a close friendship, a marriage is this little micro community, believe it or not. Um, it acts as something of a set of hands wringing out the sponge that is your personality. Uh, meaning what's actually inside of you will get squeezed out over time. This is why single people who love to imagine themselves as awesome get married and then they suddenly realize, whoa, I'm a jerk. What's, what's going on with this? Or, this is an easier one, folks who have always lived alone take up with roommates and then they're like, why does everyone want to kill me all the time? It's, it's not that they've suddenly become intolerable, it's that they were always intolerable. No one was just around to sort of bring up how insufferable you actually are, you know, until you live with you. It's like, what are you, you're the worst human to, you know. That's what community does. It brings out the best and the worst in us. That's uh, exposure, basically. But in a healthy community, there's also encouragement where the family of God sees the person that you can be and the person that you will become and they partner with God in helping you walk that narrow road of spiritual formation. Living this way is obviously way more difficult than not living this way. Believe me, I've been at it for years now. It is often brutal, but this is the only way to live out your discipleship to Jesus. I really believe that and I also believe in all honesty that it is better and ask anyone who's gone through something horrific or tragic and has a community around them, and they will tell you it is better. Uh, in his book, Slow Church, C. Christopher Smith writes this, Spiritual formation occurs primarily in the context of community. Long-term interpersonal relationships are the crucible of genuine progress in the Christian life. People who stay grow. People who leave do not grow. It is a simple but profound biblical reality that we both grow and thrive together or we do not grow much at all. Now, in the place of the environment in which we live, encounter formation is the Holy Spirit. Think back to our talk uh, last week. The goal is to learn to live in a constant state, in a, a state of awareness of and connection to the Holy Spirit. And that means that the Spirit becomes the air that we breathe, so to speak, more than uh, our subculture is the air that we breathe or our city or our home or the digital world or whatever it is. The Spirit becomes our environment, our constant state of being. And in that constant state of connectedness to the Father, we are changed in the same way we are shaped by the environment in which we live. And all of this happens over time. Uh, I realize this is hard to swallow in the frenetic, rapid pace of our modern lives, but formation takes time. It takes a very long time. And that doesn't mean that there's not any sense of immediate fruit or that the results take years, any results at all take years and years and years, but it takes a very long time. I read one author this week who said, uh, the truth about significant soul transformation is this, 
Change is possible, but it's harder than we want and takes longer than we expect. <laughs> and I thought, oh, that's a bummer. Um, <laughs> because, you, you know, you can't sort of microwave your character. There's no Amazon Prime for your character, or certainly no Amazon Prime now, which is just fascinating to me. The other day I was like uh, going through just the availability of Amazon Prime now, you know. I'm like, wow, look at this. If I wanted to, I could have... Uh, Flight of the Navigator on Blu-ray within an hour brought to my home. Or bananas, you know, either one. That's the, that's the future, people. Um, but that's not the way spiritual formation works at all. It, it grows instead like a, a tree or something. It's very slow, but it's very strong and very persistent when cared for and done properly. Um, it unfolds over a tremendously long period of time, and it happens through the hard knocks of life. Regardless of whether or not you apprentice Jesus, obviously I think most of us realize at this point that life is not easy. Um, but if you are a disciple of Jesus, the most difficult, tragic, painful things of life can become a catalyst for spiritual formation. Uh, the classic text on this comes from James. Consider it pure joy, brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. So let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Throughout the story of the scriptures, the authors make the point that often in the worst seasons of our lives, we grow and mature more than any other season. Of course, our entire Western society is sort of built to spare us any and all measure of pain whatsoever, whenever possible. We live by this idea of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. We imagine that these things are, we are entitled to at all times. And then we think that any ensuing hardship takes us away from our proper and entitled seat of ongoing, uninterrupted bliss that we should be in at all times. And because of this, many of us don't know how to confront suffering when it comes and can't be avoided. We don't know how to face uh, cancer or death or di divorce or unemployment or abuse or whatever it might be. And we end up blaming God for what we presume to be this negligent deviation from our deserved life of happiness. And the best our culture can possibly do is distract us from our pain. Here's some food or here's some more stuff that you can buy or here's travel or here's entertainment or here's accomplishments, here's information. And there comes a point when all that stuff simply isn't enough and it's just you and your pain. And it's the very times of pain from which we often run that stand to act as an agent of intense transformation in our journey to become like Jesus. So before we end tonight, this is what we're getting out. How do we change to be like Jesus? Through teaching, through practice, through community and the Holy Spirit. It happens over time and it happens through the hard knocks of life. Now let me ask my original question once more. Is this actually possible? Is this truly achievable at a quantifiable and deep soul level? For those of us who have been damaged by abuse or by divorce or failure for those of us with uh, quote-unquote difficult personalities you know some of us who are wired to be impatient by default or caustic mean-spirited or, or maybe we're type a or we're introverted whatever it might be is this true for us is this true for the addicted is this possible for the mentally ill is this sort of all-encompassing metamorphosis actually possible 
And I believe, listen to this, I believe that the answer is yes, it is possible, but it is not inevitable. Meaning, it won't just happen if you show up to church most weeks, if you read your Bible and you pray from time to time, it won't just happen. Those things are crucial. They're absolutely crucial. But alone, they will not produce comprehensive transformation. Transformation requires intentional apprenticeship to Jesus of Nazareth. So I want to conclude this evening. We've got obviously a great deal more to talk about in this series, but for our purposes tonight, I want to conclude this evening by taking a, a long, hard look at our lives. And here's what I mean. Um, this is an exercise that maybe you can do in the, in the quiet of your mind in just a moment, or maybe you want to carve out some time to do this week, uh, whatever it might be, but here's a helpful exercise. Uh, carve out a few minutes, look and think about the things that form you. You know, if you think about that first unintentional spiritual formation paradigm, your relationships that you entertain, the environment that surrounds you, your habits, and the stories that you believe. Think about those things that are forming you um, and ask yourself, who am I becoming? Or sit down with someone in your community and, and talk about what you see in the trajectory of your life. If you were to look at it and say, like, let's say nothing changes whatsoever. These are my habits. This is my environment. These are my relationships. On a long enough timeline, who am I becoming? And maybe it's not so bad. Maybe you don't like what you find at all. But is that person that you are becoming Jesus of Nazareth expressed through your personality and your gender and your life stage? Or is it someone else? For me, honestly, this can be a scary thing to do. Maybe you're already thinking it's already scary. I don't have to think about it at all. Um, honestly, I, I often don't like what I see when I sit down to think this way um, because I don't want to become uh, eventually debilitated by stress and worry and always impatient with my wife or emotionally disconnected from her eventually because I can't slow down and, and think and get emotionally healthy. I, I don't want to be so caught up in the relentless current of, of stress and busyness and my tendency toward self-hate that I no longer see my son and daughter at all. I don't, I don't want those things for myself. I, I want to make changes. When I plot the trajectory of my life and I don't see Jesus on the end of the timeline, I want to make Changes, And I think some of you uh, would, would agree with me and want to do the same thing. I think some of you uh, need, are like me and you need to do the same thing. Some of you are like me and you need to do that now as quickly as possible. Whatever those changes may be. Maybe it's something simple. For a lot of you guys, it might be something like uh, stepping into community for the first time. Uh, you, you need to give up an individualistic sort of way of carrying out your discipleship and get around a group of people not self-selected but community and figure out what it means to follow to Jesus together in the context of a community. Um, maybe for others uh, of you, you need to step into the practices of Jesus for the first time, um, the spiritual discipline, silence, solitude, prayer, fasting, reading the scriptures every single day, um, the practice of the presence of God, what we talked about last week, carving out 10 minutes, just 10 minutes every single morning to remind yourself of God's closeness and his proximity. But more uh, simply than evaluating the trajectory of our lives, I'd also like to encourage you guys uh, this evening and myself, if I can be frank, um, that this is not a lost cause. You can change. 
even if the inevitability of the formational things around you feels crushing or it doesn't look very good at all, you can absolutely change them. And, and so can I. If you're mired in addiction, you can change. If you're relationally dysfunctional, if you're emotionally unhealthy, if you're bitter or you're immature, you can still change. In fact, um, you can be transformed from the outside in. Each of us can actually recover our humanity, what it means to have the life that is truly life through our intentional apprenticeship to Jesus of Nazareth. So would you guys uh, join me in just listening to the Spirit for a second? If you don't mind, would you just go ahead and clear your lap, stand up? <laughs> 